Hi, this is Scott Snibby, host of A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. My new book, How to Train a Happy Mind, shares the accessible approach to Buddhism familiar to podcast listeners. It features a foreword by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and you can order it right now in print, ebook, or audiobook just about anywhere you buy books. In May, I'm doing two special events in New York City, one with musician and artist Laurie Anderson, and another with DJ Spooky. Both events can also be streamed online. Go to our website at skepticspath.org for more details on the book and tour. A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment is a nonprofit organization. All our content is free and ad-free, thanks to our generous donors. To support us now, visit our website at skepticspath.org. We accept cash, credit, Bitcoin, and other cryptocurrencies, and all your donations are tax-deductible in the U.S. I'm Scott Snibby, and this is A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. One of the world's foremost Buddhist scholars and teachers, Dr. Jan Willis, joins us this week to address the almost impossible question, what is enlightenment? In this episode, you'll hear Dr. Willis talk about whether you lose yourself when you become enlightened, whether there are people on earth who are enlightened right now, and whether enlightenment might really be possible for people like you and me. Dr. Jan Willis has a distinguished career as a scholar and teacher of Buddhism that spans 50 years. She first met Tibetan Buddhists in India and Nepal at the age of 19 and went on to earn degrees in philosophy and Indic and Buddhist studies from Cornell and Columbia Universities. Dr. Willis has taught Buddhist studies and philosophy at UC Santa Cruz, the University of Virginia, and Wesleyan University. Now in retirement, she teaches part-time at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia, and leads workshops exploring race and racism through a Buddhist lens. In her academic and popular books and essays, Dr. Willis writes with moving precision on Tibetan Buddhism, Buddhist saints' lives, women in Buddhism, and Buddhism and race. Her latest book is the compelling essay collection Dharma Matters, Women, Race, and Tantra, and her unique personal story is captured in her memoir, Dreaming Me, Black, Baptist, and Buddhist, One Woman's Spiritual Story. So it's an honor to have a chance to speak to you again, Dr. Willis. I think you have a conference with the Dalai Lama coming up next month. So thanks for making the time to talk with the Skeptics Path to Enlightenment. It's a great pleasure. You've kindly agreed to talk about enlightenment today, uh, a concept that I think is foreign and confusing to a lot of people, even some longtime Buddhists and especially Western Buddhists. So I'd like to just start with that big question, what is enlightenment? And then lean back and listen to your wisdom for a little while. <laughs> Thanks so much. From the moment I got your email with the suggestion that we have another conversation and maybe this time, it might be something like, what is enlightenment? The moment I saw that, I thought, wow. I know this is something one can't talk about, but it's just such a juicy topic. Let's give it a try. So the question was just wonderful. We have to begin with that caveat. We're going to be talking about something that 
can't properly be talked about. That is, language doesn't capture it. Language doesn't really touch it. In Buddhism, there's no way language touches it. But similarly, there's no way language really touches very deep emotions or, or very deep insights. We know this from our religious traditions. People have visions. There are mystical encounters. The fact is we're talking about experience, so it doesn't lend itself readily to discursive thought and to language. But it's fun. It's juicy. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about something that can't properly be talked about. So it'll be fun if we hold that in our minds and we're not trying to come up with something definitive. Here's enlightenment. Here it is. <laughs> so I want to read now this small account. It's an account of after the Buddha's enlightenment. And we're really going to have to go into these words, enlightenment, awakening, and so forth. But this will get us started, I think. Soon after the Buddha was enlightened, he was apparently walking and another person saw him. Now, we can imagine, mythically, the Buddha must have appeared quite different. His countenance, radiant. So he's, he's walking along the road and this person sees him and asks him, my friend, my friend, what are you? He asks the Buddha. Are you a god? No, answered the Buddha. Are you some kind of magician? No, the Buddha answered again. Are you a man? No, <laughs> the Buddha answered. Ooh, tantalizing, sorry, <laughs> getting away from the story. Well, my friend, then what are you? To which the Buddha replied, I am awake. Marvelous. I am Budo. I am awake. So, something happened. He was Siddhartha Gautama. He meditated for six years. Rigorous meditation. Ate two rice grains a day, three sesame seeds a day. He was determined. And something happened that completely transformed him. And his description of it to that person who asked was, I am awake. Mm. Dynamite story, <laughs> I think. <laughs> now, there's a Zen saying that if you see the Buddha, kill him. Ha! So what's going on there? Lots and lots of things. Lots of commentary on it. If you see a Buddha... You don't have much wisdom. Ah, oh, some texts say. Why is that? Because you've got a fixed idea of what a Buddha must be like. And if you have a fixed idea, you don't get it. That is <laughs> the uh, Diamond Sutra. In a passage of the Diamond Sutra, I guess it's two shloka, the Buddha says, those who by my form did see me, and those who followed me by my voice, wrong the actions they engaged in. Me, those ones will never see. From the Dharma should one see the Buddha. 
from the dharmakayas comes being's guidance. Yet dharma's true nature cannot be discerned and no one can be conscious of it as an object. If you see the Buddha, kill him, kill him quick. Why? Because you've got some frozen idea. Uh, you don't clearly understand impermanence because you form these fixed ideas. Then also in the Zen tradition, a further commentary says, why are you mistaken? Because you see two separate things. You see the Buddha apart from yourself. Ah, you see the Buddha out there when the Buddha is always in here. Talk about Buddha nature, right? So if you see the Buddha on a road, <laughs> check yourself. <laughs> Love these stories. Reality is fluid. It's impermanent. It's not fixed. Nagarjuna said it's precisely because things are void that they have utility. Things are not as we see them. So I like that the Zen folk, the Zen Buddhists, have these stories about killing the Buddha if you see him. So nothing in words captures it. And I think that's because enlightenment is an experience. Now, Buddhism privileges experience. In this regard, it's unlike all the other world traditions that ask us to accept a creed, ask us to accept a certain dogma and belief. What did the Buddha say? Ehi pasika, come and see for yourselves. It's about your own experience. I'm not telling you this is the way it is. I'm telling you to come, and as Lama Yeshe would say, check up, see for yourself. My teacher, Lama Yeshe, would say that. Check up, check up. Okay, so it's bound to be hard to talk about this enlightenment. And now I think many more people, Buddhist practitioners and Buddhist scholars, are wrestling with this idea. Should we keep the term enlightenment? Or should we use awakening? The Buddha awakened. That's what he said. He said, I am Buddha. I am awakened. They have different flavors, the term enlightenment and the term awakening. Huh? Enlightenment is like static. It's like a state. He reached enlightenment. It's like final. <laughs> Where's the fluidity in that? Whereas awakening is more process. Most of my training has, has been in Tibetan Buddhism, but I go back to Zen stories often because that was my first uh, encounter with Buddhism was Zen. But I note that Zen talks about Satori and Kensho, and they talk about, I think this is correct, once Satori is reached, then it's to be deepened. Once you have that insight, then you continue to work. It's not like, okay, I got it. <laughs> you know, I can leave the Zendo now, hey. Or we say success was attained. Hmm? We have a glimpse of our Buddha nature. We have a glimpse of our basic goodness. We have a glimpse 
of our minds, true nature. Yeah. And then we have to keep working. And can you say what Satori is? Does that mean enlightenment in the Japanese tradition or does it have a different flavor? It has a flavor like awakening. They are commonly used as synonyms, Kensho and Satori. Kensho. Ken means seeing and show means nature or essence. So seeing the essence is Kensho. Satori means awakening, understanding, and it's derived from the verb satoru. Satori and Kensho, both in the Zen tradition, are considered first steps Mm. towards enlightenment. I want to ask you about what you're saying about Satori, because what you said about it not being an end, but a beginning, that it's something you achieve and then you deepen it. I Mm. think certainly the way I, I'm sure mistakenly think about enlightenment is a kind of finish line. It's something you attain and then we're taught that you're omniscient, you're aware of, of all beings, thoughts and actions and all knowledge and experience in the universe throughout all time. Quite a superhero type explanation. And that explanation, I always scratch my head a little bit because if knowledge is infinite, like how can you really have infinite knowledge? (laughs) So can you talk a little bit about that? I I really love this idea that enlightenment might be something more like a beginning point and that there's growth within the experience of enlightenment. Like we said at the beginning, we're just talking, right? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. We're talking about something you can't talk about. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that Satori Kinsho. Even the the episode I was talking to you about that happened to me in Thailand, I think these experiences, at least that some of us have, they are just the beginning. Assurances. This is really your mind. This is what you're not experiencing day to day. But it's you and it's in you. This is your Buddha nature. Clean, clear, perfect, infinite, shining. And then I think, once you've tasted that, it's just like having an initiation. But then you have to go and practice, right, if you want to taste that again. (laughs) One question, I think, also for a lot of people is whether enlightenment is really possible. I, I certainly know a lot of Buddhists who have just completely set that aside for maybe more practical everyday practice. When you say people have set it aside and are going to deal with more than the day to day and keep meditating. That's the point. Keep meditating. Nah, that's, and I think that's why it is good to say awakening rather than enlightenment. Mm-hmm. It's not a final state. It's something that you experience and then you deepen. Satori is supposed to be deepened. Mm-hmm. You get a taste and then you continue to practice. So I think it's ongoing. So I also want to tell you about Steve Batchelor's take on the Buddha's experience. Yeah, what is the secular view of Stephen Batchelor? What does he say in Buddhism without belief? What's his take? Yeah, well, he talks about the Buddha's enlightenment experience in another book, in his Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist. He is saying that we should do away with the mythologizing around the Buddha's life and the Buddha's experience. We should do away with that and see 
what really happened. So he talks in the book a lot about the historical and societal goings on. So at a certain point, though, he gets to the Buddha's own experience. And while he's put aside things like karma and rebirth, he thinks, I do believe, and Steve and I are okay, so <laughs> I guess he won't mind too much my saying this. But I think when he tries to describe the Buddha's enlightenment experience, to me, it gets a little weird. He's one of those people who uses awakening, but he actually thinks he can describe the Buddha's experience. Oh. <laughs> Page 129 in Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist. Gautama's awakening involved a radical shift of perspective rather than the gaining of privileged knowledge into some higher truth. Agreed. He did not use the words know and truth to describe it. He spoke only of waking up to a contingent ground, this conditionality, conditioned arising, that until then had been obscured by his attachment to the fixed position. Okay. While such an awakening is bound to lead to a reconsideration of what one knows, the awakening itself is not primarily a cognitive act. It is an existential readjustment, a seismic shift in the core of oneself and one's relationship to others and to the world. Rather than providing Gautama with a set of ready-made answers to life's biggest questions, it allowed him to respond to those questions from an entirely new perspective. Absolutely agreed. I agree with every word of that. Now, then he takes us up to the moment. There's Gautama sitting under the tree. <laughs> and Stephen describes it. Uh, it's scary to me, but here it is. Gautama's quest has led him to abandon everything, his kingdom, his homeland, his social standing. Life is groundless ground. No sooner does it appear than it disappears only to renew itself and immediately break up and vanish again. It pours forth endlessly. If you try to grasp it, it slips away between your fingers. Here's his description. This groundless ground is not the absence of support. It supports you in a different way. Whereas a place can tie you down and close you off, this ground lets you go and opens you up. It does not stand still for a moment. To be supported by it, you have to be with it in a different way. Instead of standing firmly on your feet and holding on tight with both hands in order to feel secure in your place, here you have to dart across its liquid, shimmering surface like a long-legged fly. Swim with its current like a fast-moving fish. Gotama compared the experience to entering the stream. Now, poetic. And yet, what Steve is arguing there in that chapter is that the Buddha's seeing impermanence and dependent origination means and his awakening means that he saw those happenings 
for everything all at once. Mm -hmm. Therefore, he calls it entering the stream. Now, for me, what do you think? If you saw dependent origination for each and everything all at once, what would that feel like? Obviously, it's difficult to put into words, but um, I think I get what you're saying because that description at the end is somewhat dualistic. There's a thing and you're writing that thing. But what you're saying is that it's you see the interrelationship of all phenomena. So there's no thing relating to another thing. It's everything interdependent. Is that what you're saying? I think Steve is saying that. But when he says it that way, it sounds to me like a bad acid trip. (laughs) (laughs) It's just as Nagarjuna said, between samsara and nirvana, there is not the slightest thread of difference. The only difference is the view. The only difference is the view, Tawa in Tibetan. Mm-hmm. If I look at this very same thing, all these things, with attachment, I'm in samsara. But if I can look at them freed of attachment, freed of positing, projecting that I, and then becoming attached to it, me, mine, then it's nirvana. In other words, Nirvana is not a place one goes to. This is for 50 years I've tried to tell my students this. It's not as though you'll disappear. It's not as though you won't be there for mom and special other to love. You don't cease to exist. The only thing that ceases to exist is the false way you saw things prior. Mm. To me, That's so clear. But in Stephen's description, he tries to say that the Buddha experiences dependent origination of all things all at once. And I think that would drive one nuts. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, it's not like I don't think that. It's like understanding There are these things, whether we're talking about concrete dharmas in the world or we're talking about our inner feelings and our emotions, inner dharmas, we know that those things are arising dependently. I don't think it's as though we're being pelted by them. Entering the stream is so fluid. I don't think it's like that. It's understanding. Do you still want me to talk about Thailand? (laughs) Oh, I would love to. Yeah, because as you said, it's an experience. It's not a place to go. And what you just said about it being so potentially accessible, you know, Lama Zopa Rinpoche also says something. I've heard him often say, enlightenment is on the tip of a wish, he says sometimes, which is, I find very inspiring that it's right here. It's very close. It's a way of changing the way you look at reality, it's not a place up in the sky or space or in another galaxy or planet. We see those Tibetan drawings Mm -hmm. and you see a certain deity has a certain twist around the waist, you know, (laughs) that gesture. And that gesture, I think, in some explanations at least, is to indicate it's just a slight change in the mind. It's just a slight change in view and everything is different. 
<laughs> Sounds like if you could straighten your posture the right way, <laughs> you can just maybe get to You could practice uh, zazen, you know? They do say that's a big part of it. You know, what you yeah. said, though, about enlightenment being scary, I, I think that resonates with a lot of people. Myself, Robert Thurman has described enlightenment as being in everyone's head at once and hearing all their thoughts, and it doesn't bother you. <laughs> but that last part, <laughs> I'm not sure. It doesn't I, bother you. Maybe it doesn't yeah. bother him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Thailand. Mm, so... It's because I'm, I'm shy about it, I guess. Oh, I know. It's a personal story. I appreciated you sharing it before. Let me frame it in terms of a teacher's blessings. So I've been practicing a long time, on and off. <laughs> Not a great meditator at all. But uh, my father died. My mother had passed away years before. But when my father passed away, and he was a good buddy of mine, supportive, called me daughter. You know, Lamia, she called me daughter. My father called me daughter. I didn't hear my father's calling me daughter until I'd been with Lamia for years. <laughs> mm. Okay, so my father passed away and I was feeling drift. After my father's funeral, I sent out a lot of emails to friends around the world. So my father passed away and I'm sort of at loose ends. I don't know what I'll do. And from uh, the venerable Dhammananda, who uh, I had known when she taught women's history at Thammasat University in Bangkok. And she now is abbess of a nunnery outside of Bangkok. So I sent her one. And I got back from her a short email with four words. Most welcome. Do come. And the next week I got on a plane and I went to Dhamma Nuns Nunnery. And she's the only one who speaks English there. Everybody else speaks Thai. That's fine. They do their chanting in Pali. I can read Pali so I could chant. And I was there for about seven weeks. When we first met Dhamma and I, she said, Jan, you know, you're so welcome here. The nuns will take good care of you. But I'm going to be in and out. I'll be traveling. I've got these talks to give but I'll be back usually on the weekends. So she left. And when she left, I thought, hmm, well, I don't speak Thai. Everyone was kind. There were 12 or so nuns there. So we would meet early in the morning, 4.30, 5.30 for the morning chance. And when they would announce, when the umse, the head nun, would announce what we're going to do and what pages, I didn't know. But if somebody pointed out the pages, then I could read along in Polly. So I was tender. <laughs> Maybe I should have just said that. Mm -hmm. So on one of the weekends, maybe two or three weekends, and Dhammanan gave a talk on meditation. And that talk answered what I had been after with Vipassana, mindfulness, meditation, and Thai tradition for a long time. For example, I heard these overly generalized instructions like, look within. What the heck does that mean? <laughs> so Dhammanan gives this meditation talk. She says, the instructions are these. You're looking outward. Turn your eyes inward. Go in about two inches and drop your vision to the pit of your stomach. I go, oh, this is what they mean, look within. 
you know, like forest tradition meditation. I knew there was more to it than look within. <laughs> then she went away. Then she came back the next week and she said, everyone to the gompa. We all went over to the gompa. She said, do the meditation I described last week. So I'm working on it. So we're there meditating and then clear light, not grayish, foggish, bright, yellowish, white like a lamp. Infinitely, no in, no up, no down. Joy, incredible. Whoa, not whoa, just whoo. Wow, but no words. I guess I must have at some point said, wow. <laughs> the next thing I know, Damananda's voice was saying to another nun, please take Jan, help Jan. I'm <laughs> going, oh, she knew something. <laughs> she saw something. And then by that point, you've grasped onto something. You said something. You said, wow, clinging has come back. But it was like an incredibly blissful, joyous, grateful, that whole thing. I don't think I cried, but something physical, something external happened that Dhammanan saw. And then afterwards, you know, I tried to catch up with her. She says, don't talk about it. So I shouldn't be talking about it, but I was blissed out. Now, was that 40 years of Tibetan Tantra? Was that that tender spot? Was that being open? Was that being adrift to my dad? Was that Dhammanan's blessing? It was probably all of the above, but it was powerful. Blissful. Calm. But I can't express it because it wasn't emotional in that Nothing about it was secular. You can't express it. It was just beautiful. No top, no bottom, infinite. Your mind, Lama Yeshi always said, your mind is pure, infinite, clear, clean, clear, dear. <laughs> so the teacher's blessings make these things possible. So I think when you touch it, then you have to practice. Of course, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Has that experience, you know, stuck with you and in, informed your practice and your being? It certainly, it certainly appears that way just as a friend talking to you. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think I remember it. I think, you no, know, it was great to taste it. Uh-huh. I think for me, it was an assurance. You know, it's good to know that's your true nature, dear. <laughs> that this is accessible if you just practice. That's very encouraging because one of the questions I had for you is is whether it's any fun <laughs> to be enlightened, that it sounds maybe boring to be happy and blissful all the time. Although the experience you just described, I think, helps dispel that a little bit. But what would you say to someone who says, is that any fun, really? Is that is that a way of living? Like, do we want to be enlightened and never be sad anymore? No. I don't know. I hope I didn't give you the wrong impression. I don't think we should. <laughs> We should want to be blissed out all the time. Yeah. I don't think that's a goal. <laughs> no, we want to relate with others. And the idea is not happiness so much as it's, we want to be able to help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You want to be able 
to help others, right? You want to be able to relieve suffering. That's got nothing to do with you. I think that some people may like this uh, rush. I remember Geshe Rafter in 1970, His Holiness doing Kala Chakra in Dharamsala. And his assistant, Geshe Rafter, there was telling us, you don't want these things just for a blissful trip because half the Westerners there were high. <laughs> you don't want this just for a blissful trip. Meditation teaches you how to control the mind. It's not just you want to be blissed out. You can't do that every time you sit down. You are trained, you know. But the thing about meditation is it trains you for another end. And that's what I think we might bring in before our time runs out, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is not only the Buddha said, I am awake, what is nirvana? That's what the Buddha says when he gives his first discourse. That doing these practices, middle way, eightfold path, these four truths, and I checked on them this way, and when I checked on them all these ways and saw that they were true, then I call them truths. Okay. So he says this practice leads to vision, leads to insight, leads to wisdom, leads to nirvana. That's the end state. Nirvana is attainable on your cushion for anybody. It's an individual liberation. In the Mayan are concerned about all the others who still suffer. So what is nirvana? The Buddha says practice in this way leads to vision. It gives knowledge. It leads to calm, to insight, to enlightenment, to nirvana. So he makes nirvana the ultimate thing. Well, what is it? The third noble truth says... The noble truth of the cessation of suffering is this. It is the complete cessation of that very thirst. It's the giving up of it, the renouncing of it, the emancipating oneself from it, detaching oneself from it. From what? Thirst. Mm. So the third noble truth is dukkha nirhoda. Ending, the cessation, that's what? That's nirvana, the ending of suffering. Buddha says, after teaching for 45 years, I've taught only two things, suffering and its cessation. Nirvana is the cessation of suffering. Be it an individual one, and what do bodhisattvas do? They vow not to enter nirvana until all beings enter nirvana. That's the only trick. I'm going to postpone my nirvana until all beings enter nirvana. And that is the ultimate wish is for all beings to be freed from suffering. So it's not about us having a good time. (laughs) (laughs) Is it being freed from suffering? Yeah. And to lead, help everyone else be freed from suffering. Exactly. And what about the sphere Supposedly, as you say, you lose, you get rid of suffering and you lose your delusions and you lose other sources of pain. But do you lose yourself? I think that's a fear a lot of people have of, oh, if I get enlightened, it's like merging into this infinite oneness. Do I give up everything? Am I no longer an individual? That harkens back for me to Steve's description. But anyway, no, you don't lose yourself. You lose the false notion you had about how yourself exists. Mm-hmm. 
It's not that you don't exist. This is really the heart of all my intro to Buddhism classes. Students fear that. Am I going to lose myself? No, yourself's pretty unique. It's relative, but it's pretty unique. You don't become a zombie. You're not like everyone else. You and you alone had your parents in this life. You and you alone have had these days of your life. You have attended this school. You're unique, but you exist relatively. You know this because you know that you were a baby once and you didn't have this body once and there have been these changes, but there's some feeling. Raula calls it a vague notion I am. It's not vague. It's not vague. It's uppermost. It's front and center. We believe it. We grab onto it. And Buddhist psychology says from the moment there is I, there comes immediately on that, me and mine. Piaget wasn't the first one to say that. Babies know. Mama, it's me. I'm calling. Come see about me. <laughs> and mama, you belong to me. You're mine. Come see about me. Buddhism says, Nothing is lost, but what is false. So you don't lose yourself. You lose the false idea of how you existed. Yeah. That's all. That's all, dear. <laughs> yeah. And the, the, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, also said something encouraging once that I heard. He said, everyone becomes enlightened in their own way. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. So that really encouraged me thinking, okay, there is... We still have our unique ways of contributing and experiencing reality. We do. Oh, thank you, Scott. Okay, a last question for you. Are there people on earth who are enlightened right now? Of course, because enlightenment means they've given up attachment to self. They've given up a false notion. They have seen, they have gain insight into the way that I exist. And so it dissipates that thought, all the emotions, you know, somebody said something about me, did they about me? So it's negative, right? The I becomes solid. And I was attacked. Ooh. All this stuff dissipates. If you don't make that I so concrete, then mm-hmm. somebody said something, you can let it go. You don't have to build up anger and resentment and all those things. Because of those stories we weave, because we're operating with it from this position of I, self, me, my, you can give that up and still be your unique self, mm. still operate in the world. I don't know. Do we buy it? <laughs> Well, then how do we, for someone who's looking, how will they spot those enlightened beings around them? They're on Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) I think you see their kindness. You know, as Holiness says, you should be kind whenever possible. It is always possible. You can tell when you see it. Mm -hmm. Not someone talking with you or at you or to you, but how they relate with others. We've seen that. A teacher has 200 people in the room, is giving a talk that day. 
everyone leaves satisfied. Everyone says, oh, he was talking just to them. Why? Because he wasn't holding to himself. He's relaxed. She's relaxed. And that shows. Buddhism says, each time a person wakes up to the fact that they're selfless and all dharmas are empty of self as well, they are freed. And they have won through, how to say it, it's third noble truth again. That being freed of self instantly frees up craving. And the cessation of craving is the experience of nirvana. So I try to tell my students, I know you're worried. (laughs) (laughs) I know why you're worried. (laughs) But you'll be okay. You'll be okay. That was fantastic. But is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? Anything else you'd like to say about enlightenment? It is possible. (laughs) Is enlightenment possible? My answer, of course, dear. (laughs) It's the very basis of Buddhism, right? I've taught suffering and its cessation. That's what the Buddha taught. An end to suffering. That's nirvana. Oh, I, one other thing I wanted to add. Westerners got early on this idea that nirvana meant an extinction of self. So our students, they come by it legitimately. You know, they've read tons of things that says, oh, Buddhism, very pessimistic, you know, you know, advocates the extinction of self. Never did that. There's the extinction of a false idea. But you'd be surprised. Getting rid of that doesn't do anything. It was just false. Put it aside, you won't feel it. It's just a false notion. But actually, nirvana, which means cooling off, that's why so many of the nuns in the Terigata speak of their enlightenment, their cool. It means cooling off. And it's, it's like being in India on the plains and far in the distance seeing the rain come. You see it coming. You're in the midst of feeling like you've been in the oven for weeks. And then the monsoon comes. It's that kind of joy, that cooling off of the heat of thirst, the heat of desire, the heat of hatred. It's a welcome thing. It's not an extinction. It's a blowing out of the candle, a cooling off of the heat. Oh, very beautiful. Thank you so much, Dr. Willis. This was an extraordinary conversation. I really appreciate your time and also the time you went, I know, into preparing for this. You're an extraordinary scholar, so I'm very grateful for all you put into this conversation and, and giving us some of your precious time. Thank you. Scott, you pose the question. I'm thrilled and thankful to you. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for our conversation with Dr. Jan Willis. If you're interested to learn more about Dr. Willis's books and workshops, 
visit her webpage at gianwillis.org. You can find a link to it on this episode's page on our website. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider making a donation to our podcast. A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment is a nonprofit organization. All our content is free and ad-free thanks to our generous donors. To support us now, visit our website at skepticspath.org. We accept cash, credit, Bitcoin, and other cryptocurrencies, and your donations are tax-deductible in the U.S. If you'd like to deepen this conversation, please join our newsletter or our social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, where we can be found under the name Skeptic's Path. And we'd be grateful if you took a moment right now to review us in your podcast app. The reviews help new people discover our podcast. Thanks to Tara Anderson for producing and editing this episode, Christian Parry and Chris Bolton for audio mastering, and Jason Waterman for marketing and digital production. We wish you a wonderful day.